Stephen Henderson. And as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. For weeks now, coronavirus has been a really scary thing happening far away that we knew would probably get here sooner or later. But suddenly, it is here, and it is causing big disruptions to daily life for many people in Michigan. All public universities are canceling in-person classes. We're going to talk more about that in a bit. Some travel from Europe is banned. The NBA is suspending its season. There will be no crowds in the stands for the NCAA basketball tournaments. And Governor Gretchen Whitmer has declared a state of emergency to help respond to the first cases here in Michigan. She joins me now to talk about what she and other public officials are doing to try to contain the spread of the coronavirus. Governor Whitmer, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. Good to be with you. Yes. So talk about this state of emergency and what it will help you do to respond to the arrival of coronavirus here in Michigan. Well, you know, a few weeks ago, I mobilized the State Emergency Operations Center. We were always um, well aware that it was a matter of when, not if, the coronavirus would present in Michigan. We got two presumptively positive cases um, on Tuesday evening, and I declared a state of emergency. That gives us the ability to take all necessary actions to address the crisis that is unfolding worldwide right now. It is important that we make decisions based on science and fact, always with the goal of protecting our population. And so I have mobilized four task forces, um, one that is focused on the economy and workforce, one that is focused on state operations, one devoted to education, and, of course, one that is devoted to um, the health of our citizenry is the most important primary consideration. But there are many different impacts that a pandemic like this will have on our on our daily lives. Yeah. We uh, mobilized the JIC as well on Monday, which is the Joint Information Center, so that we are able to share real-time information with our, um, everyone who's interested with the general public and especially with the press, because I appreciate and respect the importance of your ability to magnify the message um, in, a, in a responsible, accurate way. And so that was something that was important as well. Yesterday, I went forward and made 62 recommendations that um, impact the general public, uh, medically vulnerable citizens, our universities and colleges, assisted living facilities, as well as our workplaces, community and faith-based organizations, as well as um, our public education and child care system. And so uh, we are moving swiftly. We're making decisions based on best practices and um, trying to ensure that that people can have confidence in what we recommend and, and reassure people this is not a time to panic. These recommendations are out of um, common sense and best practices, not out of fear, but out of making sure that we are prepared. Mm. So, so people are hearing lots of advice and counsel uh, on social media, on mainstream media about what their lives should look like while this is going on. And I, I think there's a lot of conflicting information out there about what people should do or shouldn't do. So from your perspective as governor of the state, what are the important things for people to be doing or not doing as we try to contain the spread of the virus? 
Well, the best thing that we can do is mitigate the community spread. Uh, If we do that, if we all play our role, we will come out on the other side of this earlier with less dramatic results on our the health of our people and on the health of our economy frankly so every one of us has to play a role the shorter and less dramatic this this is in michigan the better for every one of us and the better for um, us to be in a stronger position to come out of it quicker and with with less long-term impacts it's also important that um, unless you are medically vulnerable or having symptoms that you not burden our health care system because we're really going to need it for the people that are impacted or have the, um, the, the greatest risk. So, so if people have events that they've been planning, if they have meetings that they have been planning, if employers, of course, have workplaces where people gather every day, should we be disrupting those things as a regular pattern? Well, as you pointed out at the top of the conversation, um, the NBA, the NCAA, our colleges and universities across Michigan have taken steps to uh, preclude and prevent or postpone events where there are large numbers of public that are generally gathering. Our recommendation, whether it is, um, you know, in the faith-based community or it is in our schools or it is on a campus, is that any Uh, anticipated event where it's 100 people or more be postponed or canceled. That is our recommendation. Not having a great concentration of people in a small space is one clear thing that we are seeing around the world um, is is an action that we can take to prevent the the spread of coronavirus. And so our recommendation is if it's 100 people or more that um, organizations continue consider canceling or postponing these events until um, later when we can have confidence that it won't contribute to the spread. Hmm. So uh, do you feel like local health departments are fully equipped to handle the response, the medical response that's going to be needed? The the spread is one thing. The other thing is the burden this is going to put on our medical resources. Well, there's no question we are going to require additional resources. We know that our local public health departments have um, are going to require more financial support. They are going to require more uh, man and woman power. Uh, they are working 24-7, and um, they are going to need the commensurate support to continue that work, and that is something that um, I am hopeful the federal government dollars will get here. I know that the legislature is taking this seriously, and we're in continual conversation and a state of emergency gives me some powers to supplement what they are able to do at this juncture. I can say that we have not run out of tests. We are able to conduct what we need to in in this moment, but we are going to uh, require additional tests from the federal government. And I know that there's been a lot of focus on that, um, that they are moving forward, and I'm hopeful that we get um, what we anticipate we need in short order. Yeah. Uh, as you said, the the idea of getting large groups of people together is being discouraged at this point, and you're seeing lots of people cancel those things. In a little bit, we're going to talk with officials at uh, our universities about their decisions to cancel in-person classes, but I wonder what you think about K-12 education here in Michigan. We have not heard much about whether 
those classes should continue to convene. There are different issues that are implicated, of course, with the K-12 closures. But uh, as governor, uh, is that another sector that uh, that you're looking at and concerned about? It is so in the um, recommendations that we put out yesterday at 5 o'clock, there is a subsection on schools and child care facilities. We know that our younger kids who are not medically vulnerable um, are not uh, you know, suffering the consequences of coronavirus the way that older populations or medically vulnerable populations are. We also know that a lot of children um, are getting their nutrition as a result of, of being in school and that it's important that we continue to do um, conduct ourselves with the best practices and, and keep our kids' health front and center. And so we've made a number of recommendations about how to do that. We have seen a, a, a school in Dearborn um, suspend in-person class because uh, that there was a reported um, interaction with one of the um, presumptively positive coronavirus patients in Michigan. Um, when that is the case, that is the appropriate measure to take. We are staying very close to our superintendents and our leaders in our public schools and in all of our schools, frankly, uh, so that they have got good information and can make decisions in the best interest of their their student population. But what we have recommended in terms of inter you know inter school interactions is that. They limit large gatherings such as assemblies that um, altering schedules so we don't have big groups of kids in one space, uh, like in recess, for instance, or in the gym, that they um, take lunches in classroom where feasible so that there's not a big lunch cafeteria uh, type scene, that staff and students are staying home when they're sick, and that there is um, full reporting to the state so that we are able to monitor what is happening statewide. And so we are taking this seriously. Our, our K-12 institutions are um, unique for the factors that I've just laid out, but we are um, moving forward and making very um, aggressive recommendations. I also wonder if you can talk about the federal response to this. We we saw the president really dismiss the idea that this was a potential threat to people in the United States just a few weeks ago. Now, of course, he's saying something very different, and he has mobilized the federal government to some extent. But give us an idea of what kind of partner the Trump administration has been in helping Michigan deal with this. And if if uh, the federal government had acted differently a few weeks ago, would we be in a better position today? Yeah, so um, I appreciate the question, and I think like governors on both sides of the aisle across our nation, um, I I do think that we missed an opportunity as the, the federal government to mobilize faster, to ramp up the production of testing kits and to disseminate them quicker. Um, I think that people have got to be able to have confidence that we're getting accurate information in all things, frankly, and when that confidence is eroded, um, any statement is taken with less seriousness than it should be, um, when, especially when it comes to the public health of our, our citizens. We need the federal government to um, do their job as well as they can so that we are able to do ours. And um, I am, uh, you know, I've had a number of calls with the vice president as well as my colleagues across the country. We are learning from one another. Um, I, I do think the feds understand the seriousness of where we are in this moment and are 
trying to rise to the challenge, but I do think that we are behind where we should be as a nation. And um, it doesn't do anyone any good to dwell or to point fingers at this juncture, but we got to do everything we can um, on all fronts. Okay, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Up next, we're going to speak with the president of Oakland University and an official with Wayne State University about their decisions to cancel in-person classes in response to the coronavirus. Stay with us on Detroit Today. One oh one nine WDET, Detroit's NPR station, celebrating seventy years of radio in Detroit. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you have joined us. We want to continue our conversation about the coronavirus and talk about all public universities in Michigan, which have canceled in-person classes due to the spread of the coronavirus. Many are canceling large gatherings as well. Joining us now to talk about what is going on in college is Ora Hirsch-Peskovitz. She is the president at Oakland University. Ora, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you so much, Stephen. I'm delighted to be here with you and your audience. Also with us is Michael Wright. He is the vice president of marketing and communications and chief of staff to the president at Wayne State University. Michael, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Good morning. So let's begin with what uh, decisions were made and how they were made uh, at your universities. It was a little surprising to me, I think, yesterday, the, the, the pace at which things started to happen in response to coronavirus after a long time of, of seeming sort of planning and, and anticipation about what we should do. Uh, or, a, or a walk us through the decision-making process at Oakland that led to the cancellation of classes. Yes, well, thank you for the opportunity. I have to say that at Oakland, we had been preparing for this eventuality for quite some time, even though we only learned of the two cases in Michigan this week, we knew that it was likely that there would be cases uh, here in Michigan um, because it was uh, clear that it was a question of uh, both diagnosis and uh, just a matter of time before this would happen. And so we were preparing um, our response um, with a team uh, that we called our Coronavirus Task Force. And um, so we were waiting to have uh, a known uh, diagnosis in Michigan. And uh, so we were prepared and um, just uh, used the uh, diagnosis uh, to launch our response. Uh, Michael, at Wayne, uh, what you've done is extended spring break. You haven't canceled classes for the rest of the semester, at least not yet. Talk about how that decision was made. Well, a little bit uh, similar to Oakland University, we've been thinking about this for a long time. Sometimes you think if you don't see or hear anything, maybe nothing's going on. But Mm -hmm. there's been a lot of planning, a lot of meetings, a lot of preparation. But that trigger was we got two confirmed cases. And once that happened and you you heard from the governor today, it was almost like a, that is the point that we start to execute the plans. As far as canceling, we happen to be sort of 
fortunate to be in the middle of spring break. And we've got a lot of conversion to make. Some of our students are not traditional students, so we have to try to figure out how do we accommodate people who don't have access to the Internet or the appropriate technology. Nonetheless, there's been a team working on how do we continue the academic mission of the university. And yesterday we did announce that we're canceling face-to-face classes uh, for the semester. Online classes we're going to continue because those are already scheduled. We've already figured that out. Of course, not every class lends itself to online. We've got performing arts. We've got uh, you know, medical school and nursing college that have clinical rotations, et cetera. So there's a lot to work out, but we're moving very, very quickly. Mm. Uh, or talk about the preparation that professors have to be able to teach online classes. This is maybe the first time a lot of people are having this experience. Yes, and I have to say that this is an enormous challenge for many of our professors and instructors at Oakland, and I would say certainly across the other universities in Michigan and across the country. I have to say that Michigan is not the only state that is rapidly uh, moving to remote teaching considerations. So um, it's a challenge for all of our instructors and for our students as well. Um, but we're working very hard uh, to help them, um, and uh, we're providing uh, e-learning instructional support for them. Um, but I do want to uh, make sure that I do not minimize the challenges for, um, for both the uh, professors and for the students, uh, because this is a novel uh, change for them. Even though I'm sure that the public is hearing more and more about online education, uh, this will obviously help us to jumpstart some of that. It's not going to be easy. And it's not going to be just online education. We're going to use a variety of different tools, including things like video conferencing and, and that sort of thing. Uh, obviously, some kinds of education don't really lend themselves well to this. You know, let me just use as an example uh, graduate students who learn by way of laboratory experiences. So, um, It is going to clearly be a challenge for us, but I think that universities are known for being innovative and entrepreneurial places, and we pride ourselves on uh, being able to adapt. I do think it's very important that we keep in mind that as we're doing this, the necessity of why we are doing it. And um, it is important to remember that this is an unprecedented, unprecedented crisis for our country. And um, this is no longer just an epidemic, but it is a pandemic. And it is predicted that 30 to 50 percent of the American public will become infected with the coronavirus. And so uh, this is not an overreaction. Um, I know that the governor was on just before us. Um, And so mitigating this and doing what we call flattening the curve is something that we really must do. And so the precautions that we are taking are necessary, even though it is challenging. Yeah. Ora, you are a medical doctor as well as the president of Oakland University. So, I mean, from your perspective to hear you say how serious this is, that it is a pandemic, not an epidemic, you're not just speculating there. You're not just throwing out ideas. I mean, this is this is in well within your field of study. 
Yes, I, I mean, I want to make it clear that I'm, I'm not an infectious disease doctor. Sure. I'm a pediatric endocrinologist, but uh, I am absolutely convinced about the necessity of us doing this. Uh, I do want to reference maybe your audience to this um, concept of what I just mentioned, which is flattening the curve. Uh, the reason that we are moving so quickly um, to what may seem to some people to be overly aggressive measures when there are only two cases in Michigan, um, first of all, I have to say that I believe that two cases is, is an underreporting of what must clearly be the case here in Michigan. Mm -hmm. But um, I do think that we need to emphasize why we think it is critical to do this is because the expectation is that if um, we allow this uh, pandemic to move at its natural course, there will be an enormous spike in cases that would, uh, again, if allowed to run its natural course, will overwhelm our health system. And by allowing that to happen, that will um, cause a crisis in the health system here in Michigan and across the country. And that will create a situation in which an unnecessary number of people will die, including uh, healthcare professionals. And not only will that create a crisis, obviously, uh, in the healthcare system, but it will actually exacerbate the health of our economy even more than is necessary. By flattening the curve, in other words, by allowing the um, epidemic and pandemic to occur over a longer period of time, it's not that we will necessarily have less people become infected, but they will get sick over a longer period of time. And three things might happen in, uh, by allowing it to take place over a longer period of time that would be beneficial to us. One, actually four things. One is that we will have more time to adapt and so we will be able to take care of those people over uh, a period of time that will allow our health system to care for them. But in addition, we'll have the opportunity to create vaccines that will enable us to have fewer people become ill. We'll be able to create antivirals that will allow us to treat the people that do become ill better. And then we will have a concept that's called herd immunity, which is um, people in the population that get ill will eventually develop immunity that will allow other people to not become ill. And all of those things are mitigations that will enable the society as a whole to be able to tackle this better, thus creating both better health of the citizens and better health of the economy. So these are measures which, um, of course, if we don't end up getting as sick, we'll say, well, we didn't really care and we didn't really need it, but, hmm. but we will be able to compare it to what is happening today in Italy and what happened in China and say, we averted this. And so uh, it is really critical that we um, use these mitigation uh, you know, procedures that we are um, aggressively implementing right now. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guests are Aura Hirsch-Peskovich. She's the president 
of Oakland University, as well as Michael Wright, who is Vice President of Marketing and Communications and Chief of Staff to the President of Wayne State University. We're talking about university responses to the coronavirus, the potential spread of the coronavirus. Uh, Many, many universities here in the state of Michigan have decided to end their in-face, in-person classes and go online uh, and lots of others, lots of others are at least considering that uh, step as well. There are lots of other things going on to try to mitigate the spread of the coronavirus, which is now officially here in the state of Michigan. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us how coronavirus is affecting your daily life already? Are you canceling plans to travel? Are you canceling events? Are you working from home instead of going into the office? Uh, give us an idea of what is going on in your world. Also, are you one of the people rushing to the stores and buying up all the supplies you can in case you need to stay home for extended periods of time? As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313 313- Five seven seven one zero one nine. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Michael, before we get to listeners, uh, campus and residence halls are still open on Wayne State's campus. Give us an idea of why you're not shutting campus down entirely. Well, for one, we've got students that for whom campus is home. So international students, that is their home. We can't ask them to go and quarantine themselves. They can't even fly sometimes to the countries where they have originated. Um, on top of that, we always, we're always, uh, our residence hall stays open during spring break. We've got quarantine procedures in place. We're in close touch with our, our campus health center so, and who are connected with, with the local hospital system so that there's a procedure if somebody, uh, you know, wants to test for coronavirus, et cetera. So we think we've got safeguards in place, and we have to keep the dining options open as well. Um, we're, we're putting in place all the social distancing, and we're ramping up to do all takeouts and to-go options, et cetera. We can't shut the whole university down without disrupting our academic mission. Mm-hmm. Now, we can mitigate this risk a, a tremendous amount by canceling the face-to-face classes, uh, doing as much as we can through the use of technology, etc. But there are things, for instance, research. We're a major research university. We've got clinical trials that are going on. We've got lots of different uh, research going on. We, if we can continue those safely, we want to do so. And we've got people that have you know, worked their whole lives toward a degree. We want to make sure we can continue that academic mission. And that takes people being on the ground. We're putting a lot of HR policies in place quickly to make sure that if people are vulnerable or people need to work from home, that we can accommodate that. So we're, we, uh, we, we think we're, we're doing the right thing. We're following, you know, there's a, a lot of universities uh, acting similarly because what we do is extremely important. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's get to callers. We've got a lot of folks who want to talk about what is going on with coronavirus. No surprise, it is affecting everybody's life right now. Let's start with Adrian in Detroit. Adrian, good, welcome to the show. Good morning, and, and here's my question. And I've always was taught, I'm in nurse, never panic first, number one. And number two, my grandson's a senior there at Wayne State with a music degree in May. 
So how do you do your orchestra class online <laughs> with That's all those great... instruments and all those face-to-face with the orchestra? How do you do that? That's a great question, Adrian. I think it applies to a couple other kinds of disciplines as well. But, uh, Michael Wright, talk about what's happening with music class. Sure. Thanks for starting with that very tough question. <laughs> we, we have to allow the discretion of professors and deans to figure some of this stuff out. I think I mentioned earlier that performing arts is one of those things where you can't do everything virtually, but we're trying to figure out how do we use systems to tape performances? How do, how do we, what can we do if you can't bring people all together in an orchestra? Some of that is yet to be determined. We bought a little bit of time because we're in spring break and we've got another week after that, but our intent is to make sure that we figure out a way for people to continue on their academic journey and with, without having to end it. Uh, Adrian, oh, I, I, we've lost Adrian there. I was going to ask her a, a follow-up question, but uh, I, appreciate, I appreciate the call uh, and the question. Let's go to Jennifer in Plymouth. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hey. Hi. I, I deliver pharmaceuticals for a living, and normally Thursdays are a very slow day, but now that there's been two confirmed cases in, cases in Michigan, we have about double the load that we normally have to deliver to hospitals. So they're preparing. Hmm. Uh, Jennifer, uh, I, I absolutely appreciate the call uh, and the comments. There is a lot, uh, of course, that is, that is going on for all of us right now, trying to figure out how to deal with, uh, how to deal with this, uh, this pandemic, uh, as uh, President Pres- Peskovitz called it uh, at Oakland University. Let's go to Deborah in Royal Oak. Deborah, what's on your mind? Hi there. Good hey. morning. Uh-huh. Um, so... Um, I'm one of the faculty members at Wayne State, and um, I guess I just need to tell everybody, you know, for those people that think we're overreacting, you just can't imagine how wrong you will be. We have so many people in our community that have, for example, some of my students have transplants. Their, their immune systems are already compromised because of all these anti-rejection drugs, and now we're putting them, you know, you can't put them in a space where they could get something. Hmm. There are young people wandering around that may not be, that may be carrying the virus and not be terribly sick, yeah. you know, and but they could give it to somebody else and spread this thing exponentially. So I, I really appreciate everybody, you know, um, jumping on and erring on the side of caution. So The it, shift it, for us as faculty uh-huh. to online education um you know personally i've done some online stuff already with my students so it's not going to be a dramatic change for me i've got to record some lectures but there are other faculty you know i teach in the business school there are other faculty that um are probably a little freaked out right now and trying to learn camtasia as quickly as they can so that they can do this but you know, we will rally and we will we will rise to the occasion. That's what we do. And it's all about our students, our students' education and the welfare of our community. Yeah. Deborah, so, appreciate the um, call and the, and the perspective. Go if, ahead. Michael if, if I can just uh, thank our caller for saying that she said it far more articulately than I have so far. Uh, but we we have from the beginning erred on the side of safety. If we, we're, if we don't have a safe campus, and we don't have a campus for all practical purposes. Our president too is a physician with a background in epidemiology, and we exceeded the CDC guidelines right away when we canceled our spring break travel for countries that weren't even on the CDC list. Um, we we take this so seriously, but I really love the way um, that professor 
talked about how we will rally. We're Wayne State Warriors. We're going we're gonna to get through this. And sometimes you lose perspective in the middle of things, but this is going to end at some point. And you can't say that now, can't feel that now necessarily, but we've got to prepare for the future too. Uh, again, Deborah, appreciate the call and the comments. Let's go to Amanda in Detroit. Amanda, what's on your mind? Hi. Um, living in Detroit, there are a lot of high-rises uh, that have a um, – a lot of them have elderly people as well as healthcare professionals that may or may not have more exposure. And um, there's the need to take elevators. And I'm wondering, um, it's not possible to have social distancing, and sometimes there could be a dozen people in an elevator. Um, how do residents, particularly the elderly ones, stay safe? Mm. Great question, Amanda. Our, our college officials here may not be the the perfect guests to to address that question. But but if we expand it to the idea of vulnerable populations, which both of your campuses certainly have, obviously there are some people whose needs look a little differently right now than than everybody else's. Uh, or a or a talk about what's going on at Oakland with with vulnerable populations? Well, you know, I'm not, again, I'm not really, um, you know, an exceptional expert on this, but um, obviously if you have an option to, uh, and you know that you're vulnerable and an elevator is full, um, I would recommend maybe waiting to take the elevator when it is not full if you know that you're the vulnerable person. Mm. Um, That would be my recommendation. Mm. Uh, Michael? Well, I, you know, the, some of the common sense uh, ways to prevent infection are things that we are used to, and now we're accelerating and, you know, washing your hands and if, if some people, uh, um, you know, keeping some social distance, so don't go on an elevator. But we're, we're very conscious that there are people who are mo- mo- most vulnerable, and we're, from a university standpoint, we're saying we will work with you to figure out a way where you can work remotely so that they don't put themselves in harm's way. Yeah. I would refer also, um, I know that um, both uh, Michael uh, at Wayne State and uh, we at Oakland have uh, posted on our website a variety of different uh, recommendations, but for people who may or may not have access to that, uh, the CDC has outstanding guidelines, and I just saw that the New York Times has now made uh, their guidelines free, even if you don't have access to a New York Times subscription. Uh, And so the public should know that the guidelines for um, good hygiene and for recommendations, not just for vulnerable populations, uh, but for the population in general, are readily and widely available. So recommendations like those that Michael is making right now, social distancing, good hand washing, uh, and other hygiene techniques are readily available, and so I would refer the public for that. And you, Stephen, might want to post those on your website as mm-hmm. well. Yes, yeah, we absolutely should be doing that here. People must WDB. be listening. They're running out of hand sanitizer. <laughs> right, that's right. Okay, Ora Hirsch-Peskovitz, president of Oakland University, and Michael Wright, vice president of marketing and communications and chief of staff to the president here at Wayne State University. It's great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you. Up next, we're going to talk about President Trump and the federal government's response to the coronavirus outbreak with Washington Post national political correspondent Philip Bump. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. Brandon in Detroit, Kay in Rochester, John on the east side. 
We'll get to you as well. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. We're going to continue our conversation about the coronavirus, but shift our focus a bit to how the topic is being handled by the President of the United States and his administration. The President addressed the nation about the virus last night, and there were a lot of moments that caused even more confusion about the topic. Philip Bump is a national political correspondent with The Washington Post who has been covering this and writing really prolifically about how the administration is handling the virus, and he joins us now. Philip, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you very much. So the President spoke yesterday again about this, and in your latest piece, you color-coded his address. Tell us what the colors indicate about the nature of his address and exactly what he said. Sure. So uh, the bulk of his speech was really based on sort of trying to frame how his administration had responded to uh, the spread of the coronavirus across the country. There were some specific policy proposals that he introduced. He introduced this uh, ban on travel to Europe for, for uh, certain elements of travel to Europe. He introduced uh, uh, some, you know, he made the same sort of recommendations we've heard from others, including earlier in your show, about, you know, maintaining social distance and hand washing. He also made some economic proposals, but he spent a lot of time really talking about how good a job his administration had done, how good the economy has been because of the efforts that he had undertaken, and therefore the economy would continue to be good. Uh, and it was it was not an unexpected presentation, uh, but I think that it was sort of surprising simply because it was so heavily focused on what it was, you know, sort of the, the self-acclimation uh, of what has already been undertaken by the government. So let's listen to a clip of what the president said last night about who's responsible for the spread of the virus. Take the same precautions and restrict travel from China and other hotspots. As a result, a large number of new clusters in the United States were seeded by travelers from Europe. So as far as optics go, he's blaming China and the EU there really for the spread of the virus. Is this kind of a way of distracting people from the way that the Trump administration has handled the situation here? And is what he's saying even true? Well, it certainly is true that the origination of the the uh, virus in the United States was from overseas. I mean, this was an outbreak that began in China, uh, and at some point it made its way into a number of other countries, including the United States. So it certainly is true that at the outset, that's how the virus got to our shores. What isn't true, though, is that the way in which it is currently spreading in the United States is primarily through people who had been overseas. There are, uh, you know, there is what's called community transmission now, which is a phrase that, you know, like social distancing, we're all very quickly becoming familiar with. But the upshot is that there are people who are infected with it, who are spreading to other people in the United States. That is the biggest problem, according to experts, is that this spread is what needs to be contained within the United States itself. And that demands things like shutting down NBA games, shutting down conventions, keeping uh, people at home instead of having them in big group events. We just saw in Massachusetts, for example, there's this conference uh, held by a biotech company 
and someone was infected with the virus, and something like 60 or 70 people got infected at that conference because they were all gathered together. The effort is to try and tamp down on those sorts of gatherings and therefore limit the spread in the United States with an eye toward limiting the number of people who need to end up going to the hospital. So, I mean, I'm sure that this is something people are familiar with, but what was remarkable last night is we didn't hear that. All we heard from Trump about social distancing was listen to your local authorities about it, and he himself didn't mandate it, clearly because he's worried about the implications for the economy. Yeah, You've heard Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and other administration officials and allies linking this to China by calling it Chinese coronavirus or Wuhan virus. Talk about the effect of that when we are trying to deal with U.S.-China relations and, and trade and all of the other things that come into that conversation. Yeah, I mean, there are really two obvious reasons that that has become a more prolific uh, framing for President Trump and his allies. The first is Pompeo seems to be specifically responding to some extent to uh, China has been more than willing to let conspiracy theories spread within China that this was originated in the U.S. and sort of inflicted upon China. There are conspiracy theories that are that are uh, spreading in the in China to that end, and part of this framing of calling this the, the Chinese coronavirus or whatever is meant to try and uh, redirect, you know, to sort of undercut that argument from China. But part of it too is to place blame on China instead of place blame. Um, on uh, whatever the authorities have or haven't done in the United States. I mean, obviously there are lots of realm uh, for criticism of how the administration has handled this. Part of the reason that Donald Trump at the top twice made reference to this as having originated in China as being a, quote, foreign virus, unquote. The reason he did that was obviously in part to say, hey, look, man, I didn't start this thing, so don't blame me for it. I, you know, the, one may take that as, as one wishes. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Philip Bump, a national political correspondent for The Washington Post. We're talking about the Trump administration and how it is handling the spread of the coronavirus. We saw President Trump speak yesterday for another time about what he thinks we ought to be doing and what the response should be in the United States to uh, the spread of the, of the virus. We want to know from you what you thought of the president's speech. How do you think the president and his administration have handled coronavirus so far? What are your concerns? And have you been hearing conspiracy theories? The president himself was one of the people who talked about this being a conspiracy uh, by Democrats and the media a few weeks ago, he's kind of backed away from that kind of rhetoric, but he is still talking about it being something that comes from China, for instance, or blaming the European Union for the way that they have handled it for the outbreak that we're having here. Again, as always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. <clears throat> you can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, before we get to listeners, Philip, why hasn't the president been proactively tested? And what do you think it signals to the American people that he hasn't? I mean, again, messaging is one of the really important parts of the job here. And right. I feel like he's all over the map with it. Well, it seems to be the case, first of all, that President Trump really internalized this idea that 
the virus would be contained. And there certainly was a window for it to be contained. If we had had you know, a much more rapid rollout of testing, we could have determined, for example, the extent of the spread in Washington State where uh, the first community spread, uh, the first wide-scale community spread was really uh, detected. Uh, but we didn't do that. And President Trump, for weeks, was arguing, well, you know, we only have 15 cases and it's going to go down. It just, it'll eventually be zero, something he said at the end of February, which actually was only about two weeks ago. Uh, so that was the, the first part of it. Then as the market started to be affected, President Trump clearly was trying to uh, try and assuage the concerns of, the, of investors and say, look, this isn't going to be that bad. We'll get through this. The economy is still strong. There, there were elements of that in his speech last night as well. Health experts, however, have moved well past that. They recognize this is out of containment, that this is being spread broadly within the United States, and their concern is slowing the spread so that hospitals aren't overwhelmed. That's the primary focus of, of the experts with whom I've spoken and who, who I've heard from, is trying to keep down the number of people who need to go to the hospital from this uh, illness. So, you know, if, if you imagine uh, to, that there are 1.2 million people who end up getting it, it's much better to have 100,000 per month by spreading it out over a year than it is to have spread it out over two months and have 600,000 people who need to go to the hospital in a month, right? It just simply puts too much of a strain on our resources. And so part of the emphasis that I'm hearing from experts is we need to slow this by doing social distancing, by staying at home, and so on and so forth. But we didn't hear any of that from the president last night. Hmm. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number. Let's go to Richard in Detroit. Richard, what's on your mind? Stephen, I always enjoy your show. Thank you. Um, I think not to over-politicize this, but of course you have to. But, you know, it's unfortunate the president's main focus has been on business and not, you know, stopping the stock market crash. I mean, the, the payroll tax holiday, I'm still struggling to see how <laughs> that makes any of us healthier to give, us, give businesses a payroll tax holiday. Mm-hmm. Or uh, the $2.3 billion versus the Democrats saying, no, we need family leave in the bill they just passed last night. We need family leave, we need unemployment benefits. We need testing. I mean, it's been reported on, on APR just an uh, hour before how abysmal our country's response was as far as getting enough testing kits available to just a couple of months ago. Um, you know, and, I mean, him calling it a hoax and telling us to go to work if you're not sick. I mean, it's, it even, even in the speech last night, his focus was we're going to give small business loans yeah. to small businesses to help them. Or, yeah, we'll give some money for people working. But we're going to focus on small business. I got some real ideas for small businesses. In contrast to the Democrats' bill of laying out, you know, family leaves and unemployment benefits and testing monies, monies for uh, those who are the least of these, who are you know low income, people for food assistance. I mean, those are really what we need to deal with as far as not making people go to work when they're sick. That's right. really going to help contain this, I think, best. And we need to focus on the workers' needs, not just business. Yeah. Richard, a uh, really great point. I'm glad you called. Philip Bump, talk about this push and pull between the Trump administration and at least one House of Congress, the House right. of Representatives, where Democrats are saying, this has got to look different. Uh, this has got to be more uh, focused, as Richard says, on, on, on people and not just on businesses and money. We should also note before you answer, though, uh, the U.S. stock market was halted again today for 15 minutes because the S&P dropped 7%. So the financial implications of what is going on are real, but the Trump administration does not seem as focused on making sure that people get relief for what's happening. 
Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the irony of Trump's speech is that he wanted to calm the markets, and the markets are not calm in response to it. Uh, the caller's uh, arguments are extremely uh, well noted. I mean, that, that, that is exactly right. A lot of experts are saying, you know, we, we, need to, we need to implement policies immediately, which discourage people from feeling as though they have to go to work when they're sick, because that's, again, part of limiting the spread of this illness. Uh, that is something that Democrats on Capitol Hill have been focused on. These are, however... Uh, this sort of uh, long-term, these are, these are things that Republicans have for a long time uh, been very explicitly objecting to, these ideas of you know, implementing paid family leave more broadly, uh, of, of giving cash to households, which is something else that's been sort of thrown out there as a way of remedying this. Look, there's no question that the, there are going to be significant economic ramifications from this outbreak, particularly as the cases continue to grow and we see a broader uh, uh, there are going to be more and more people who are asked not to work. Restaurants are going to be closed in, in certain areas, if not more broadly. These things are going to happen over the next couple of weeks. There are going to be huge economic ramifications for that, and it seems as though one of the challenges is the White House is simply a few steps behind instead of being a few steps ahead. And President Trump is worried about, you know, how do we, how do we make sure the cruise ship industry is doing okay in six months. Fine. You know, we can worry about that. <laughs> but over the short term, there are much more immediate problems that we need to focus with that we, we simply haven't been hearing from them. And now we're also getting rumblings this morning that uh, House Republicans are, are taking issue with what the Democrats propose. So we'll have to see how that works out. Hmm. Uh, we're running out of time, but Sharon and Harrison Township uh, is calling and saying that she's going to disregard anything that comes from the president because she can't trust that he knows what he's talking about. I wonder if there is any polling that's going on about the public's approval of how this is being handled by the Trump administration and whether people believe the president when he comes out and, and speaks about this. Um, there is, and I actually wrote about this yesterday evening before Trump spoke. Uh, there is polling that suggests that, broadly speaking, people are not don't generally think that President Trump has handled this well. But one of the things that I think is most remarkable is there's an, a poll from Axios and SurveyMonkey that came out last week, uh, or actually earlier. Everything seems like it was, you know, weeks ago, when in fact it was 24 <laughs> hours ago. But uh, there was polling that came out that essentially said that Republicans broadly think that this all this entire issue has been overhyped. They're not particularly concerned about it. They're not. They don't necessarily support these ideas of shutting down large events and so on and so forth. And obviously that is... Uh, to some extent, derives from President Trump's messaging, also from the messaging on you know, conservative media and Rush Limbaugh and Fox News. That's a big problem. If people don't take seriously the need to not go to these large events and so on and so forth, that can help the virus spread. And so uh, there is polling that shows that Donald Trump isn't viewed uh, as though he's handling this particularly well. And additionally, that his messaging may actually be doing some harm. Okay, Philip. Bump, national political correspondent for the Washington Post. Always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. That's going to do it for us today. I will be back tomorrow when it will be 313 Day. We're going to talk about some interesting and lesser known stories in Detroit's past. And Dance Theater of Harlem is going to debut a new program set to the music of Stevie Wonder right here in Detroit at the Opera House this weekend. I'm going to speak with the choreographer of that production. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.